Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 152 of the Australian Hiker podcast. In this week's episode, we talk with Gary Tisher about what it takes to be a contributor in the Australian outdoor magazine industry. Gary has been contributing to some of Australia's best-known outdoor magazines for nearly 40 years, and while you may not know his name, chances are you've read his articles over the years. Today, we catch up with Gary to find out how he became involved in writing and photographing for the magazine industry and how it's evolved over the years. We hope you enjoy. Okay, Gary, thank you for taking your time to talk with Australian Hiker. Thank you, Tim. Look, I'm always happy to chat about hiking and photography. Okay, now, before we started talking about your um, involvement with uh, writing and uh, photographing for the outdoor magazines, tell us a bit about your background and your involvement in hiking. As a kid, we used to go hiking quite a lot. We'd go camping every Easter. We'd go camping on long weekends. And my father was um, very much the instigator of that. And I've now got a, a... suitcase full of photos which actually go back about a hundred years and my great-grandfather was into hiking and, and camping and so I've got about a hundred years of photos going back to then so um, as I got older and became a teenager I would head off with a couple of mates and we climbed the Glasshouse Mountains by ourselves um, I went to school outdoor camps out, did an outdoor program with the school and, and that was fantastic because it introduced rock climbing and and multi-day wilderness camping, and that was uh, how I eventually, how I basically got into it as a as a kid, and have been doing it ever since. Okay, that, that sounds like a, a, there's almost an interesting interesting book out of the uh, the case full of photos by the sound of it. Absolutely, yeah. There's it's really interesting to look at. There's Model T Fords with with tents strapped to them and. It's and walking sticks, and I've actually got my grandfather's, my great grandfather's walking pole, um, which uh, a wooden pole, and uh, yeah, that that goes back a long time. Okay, now what what sort of hiking do you like doing? Is there any particular style, or you do anything and everything? Generally, everything. Although what my cr- criteria used to be is, I'd like to do multi day hikes where I can drink the water. Yep. And that was a, a lot in the snowy mountains um, until one year I got sick. And I've come to learn after that that there's um, the water in the snowy mountains isn't really fit for drinking because of the spread of some of the um, bacteria and viruses in, in the water through the animals and um, because of people basically going to the toilet, uh, particularly cross-country skiing and also hiking, and they will spread the disease from there. But that was my my criteria. Um, although I'll do day walks when and wherever I am, I've done parts of the Lara Pinta Trail as I've driven into some of the campsites. And um, but the multi day hikes are, are where I prefer, and and in wilderness areas where I can't see any civilization. Yeah, no, I'm a bit the same actually, and I I do understand what you mean about the. Uh, uh, the Alpine regions after after doing a bit of the Australian Alps walking track uh, Easter last year where the horses had just trashed a lot of the water sources. Um, I'm, I'm never game to not filter even when it does look clear. Absolutely. And, and one of the, the worst times I was sick was at Broken Dam Hut and Snowies and that's where a lot of horses had been. Um, so I always filter. I used to filter. Now I use a a um, ultraviolet filter, well, not a filter, ultraviolet treatment. So, um, and that I found um, is great. It's quick. I can limit the amount of water I, I carry and use what I find using that. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's definitely worthwhile. So some of my favourite areas are Jagungal Wilderness um, in the, the Kosciuszko National Park. That's 
so much area of, of walking available off track and and camping and finding some fantastic spots. Other places, uh, Tassie, I recently did the Overland Track in 2019, just after Easter. Yeah. And that was some that was something that I've been wanting to do for over 40 years and, and just never got round to it. So I was on a holiday down in Tassie at the beginning of that year and thought, no, I've got to do it. So I just booked on and uh, did it solo and got snow and that was fantastic. I was going to say, did you have snow at that time of the year? You, you can get snow at any time of the year, but particularly sort of March, April sort of period, it's, it's probably more than likely you're going to pick it up. Absolutely, yes. The, the day I started, Anzac Day 2019, there was uh, walkers' warnings and it started to snow. It snowed overnight that night, um, which was fabulous. I, I love a bit of adventure and, and that certainly um, gave it to me. So let's get on to the, um, the print and media now. Uh, and I say print here because magazines aren't just print anymore. How did you get in, into contributing to magazines um, and where did the whole process start? goes back to the first photographs I got published were in the in-flight magazine for TAA at the time, which is now became Qantas or then became Qantas. Um, and I just took the photos for a friend of mine who was writing an article for it and I liked that and I thought, oh, this is fun. So I did a few more for another couple of magazines or another magazine. Um, and then I was talking to Dave Moss, who was in what was then Mountain Experience, which became Mountain Designs. Um, he and Rick White effectively started that. And he said, oh, why are they looking for um, content? So if you've got a story, send it in. And Chris Baxter was running it at that point. And while it just literally started, I think, that year. So I thought, oh, that'd be great. So I did a mate and I climbed Mount Barney and um, then I took a couple of mates up and thought, oh, this would be a good story. So I sent the story off to Wild with slide films, slides, and they said, oh, look, yeah, the story's great, but we really like black and white images. Okay. So I went, so this is, yeah, going back to their really early versions. And I, so I went back down and took some black and white images, which really didn't capture the, the walk. Um, and then I think processes changed within Wild and, and they published that story with the, the slides. And that was my first experience with Wild. And, and I kept getting published by Wild and other magazines um, and didn't get knocked back for some time, which was really interesting. I think I was right time, right place. I was able to take photos and write a story. And there weren't many people doing it at the time. So that's how it pretty well started. Okay. Now, yeah, you're talking about the 80s here. How has the writing and photographing for magazines changed over the, the period you have been a, a contributor? It's changed quite a bit in terms of the technology more than anything, both on the um, how the mag magazines produce themselves, going from print to now digital, and also the black and white prints that Wilde originally wanted then to slide film and I took slide film for about 15 years. Now sorry I'll just interrupt you there why slide film? Slides they the processes in, involved in printing a magazine they could get better results from scanning slide films for their printers rather than um, print print rolls so yeah slide is what everyone was taking uh, the problem with slide film, if you've never taken it, is that you can't muck it up. You have to be technically um, get it spot on in in camera. Right. And uh, it's a great way to learn because if you mess it up, you mess it up and there's no bringing it back. And moving from then slide to digital in, in, 20, uh, in 2004 was when I got my first digital camera. I went to Nepal to do Mirror Peak. And so I took both, and really I ended up using the digital much more than the slides. And um, that that was an interesting experience. And then some of those photos were published in uh, Mountain Designs catalogues. And the first camera I bought was first digital camera, 
cost me fifteen hundred dollars. It was a Canon, and it was four megapixel, <laughs> which is probably a quarter of what you have in your phone right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, certainly um, I can remember for many, many years. Um, uh, talked to a, a professional photographer probably about twenty years ago, and asked them asked him how he get good, gets good photos, and he said you just take lots of them. So he said he'd go out and take. This was still at the time of film. He'd go out and take two hundred photos, and he might get one or two that was really worthwhile dealing with. Uh, and I think digital these days, you know, if you take two hundred photos, yeah, it, it's not as if it's costing you money to 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 actually um, go through and process them and 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 work out what you've got. That's exactly right. And slide film was about a dollar a slide. Yeah. So for a, a week walk, I would take. Maybe a, a roll of 36, maybe two rolls, um, so that's 72. Um, and you, if you're looking back in the 80s and 90s at a dollar a slide, that gets fairly expensive. So you, you learned very quickly to know how to use your camera, frame your shots, um, and really think about what you are trying to do. I think and, that, I think that's the thing these days with digital. I mean, as you say, I mean, from what I understand and from my memory, um, film photography um, teaches you the technique a bit better. But when you've got something that leaps up in front of you and runs away, quite often that goes out the door, and you just have to snap away and hope you get what you can. And I think that seems to be the big advantage of digital uh, cameras these days. Absolutely, and so with digital, I will take thousands. On, on a trip. I'm not sure how many I took on the eight days on the overland track, but it would probably have been about 800 images. Yeah, that sounds about, that's what, that's about what I do. So. Yeah, and I never delete an image. Um, I certainly, a tip is never delete an image on track because you may delete the whole card or format the whole card, and I've got a friend who did that on, <laughs> uh, the, on the Milford track. Um, so I, I never delete. And also for battery life is don't sit at night looking at all your photos. Just look at the, some of them maybe, but you'll run your battery down if you do that. So and on a longer walk, batteries are uh, crucial to digital photography. Yeah, yeah. I must admit, I, um, from a social media perspective, I, um, I tend not to – I'll, I'll look at it after I've taken the photo, but that's it. And, and I rely on uh, uh, my phone for anything that's getting published on social media. And the uh, I'll look at my, my, my typically my 800 photos a week when I get back, as you say, get back on the computer and you've, you, you've got the time and the capacity to do it. Yes. And with it's interesting how it's changed for magazines. So from the black and white, the slide, the digital, also now to video with digital magazines. So video is um, playing a much bigger part and pretty well every story I write now, it's mainly for digital magazines, I will do a video. Um, and that also from video is going into then drones is the latest technology too, which are a bit controversial to, to bushwalkers and um, certainly national parks. You're not able to use a drone in a national park in Tassie you can in Queensland, in most national parks. Yep. Others, you need approval to do it. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are just sending their drones up and annoying wildlife and walkers. So that that's a bit of a, a, um, a topical issue at the moment even. I must admit, we, we found that when we did the um, the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail in South Australia. We heard this buzzing noise and couldn't work out what it was and the, and the drone goes flying overhead and the, the, the operator was nowhere to be seen. Like they were back in the car park flying it over um, uh, the, the coastline. It's just, you know, you know, there's all these signs everywhere saying no drones, no drones. So um, as, as you say, it's sort of sometimes people can get a bit annoying with it. It's, uh, it's, you know, if they ever, whoever comes up with a silent drone will make a fortune, I think. Yes, true. Okay, now, I've always been taught that spending a bit more time thinking about the photos you take will minimise any editing you need to do when you're back at home. Um, given that most photographers use digital cameras these days, is that still the case? Yes, it is. Definitely think about the shot that you're wanting to take um, and think about the composition because 
it, with Photoshop these days, if you have a, a person in an image with a, a there's a pole directly behind them, you you can remove that, but it is a pain. You're better off doing it, thinking about your shot before you take it. Look at the composition, look at the light, what's best, what's in the background. Look what's in the background. Um, so understand what the light is doing. Um, look at the composition, and I'd say use manual controls to understand those things, understand what the, the controls on the camera do to, to capture certain light. But also, I will often use my camera on auto, either set the, the aperture or the, the shutter and then have it on auto and also on autofocus. That way that you can focus on the actual composition more. But certainly understanding how to use the controls, how to use light, and then composing the image will help you a long way in getting the image you want straight out of the camera, and then you can perhaps just touch it up. And in terms of touching images up in Lightroom, Instagram filters, they look great on Instagram, but then no use to magazines. Um, you're best off using something like Lightroom and doing minor, mod minor touch-ups. If you can tell that it's been um, touched up, it's too much. Just drop it back. Take it where you, it looks perhaps really good and then drop it back a little bit so people won't realise that you've actually enhanced it in some way. I, I must admit, particularly on Instagram, I think you think you're right. You see some of these photos and think that looks really spectacular, but it, it is really obvious that it has been manipulated to, to get it to that sort of state. So um, you know, you, you're never going to see that in, in the wild. You'll only ever see it through the lens of a camera and a computer system. Absolutely. And one image I recently had on my computer, I'd, I discarded it I, or just looked at it and thought, no, that's that's a terrible image. It won't work. It was a sunrise and the foreground was just way too dark. But because I'd taken a raw photo, what I was able to do is actually bring up the detail in that dark areas um, and then lower the highlights in the, the sky. And it came up very well and ended up getting published. Yeah. Okay, now, how has taking photos and writing articles influenced the way you hike? Has it made any changes? I've always been taking photos um, on hikes and going back to the, the 80s and the days of my film and my slides, I would always take them for, for me, not for, for stories and that sort of thing. And I would always try and set up a shot in terms of taking pictures of, of the back of people walking along the trail generally aren't particularly interesting. So I would often be running ahead with full 20, 25 kilo pack, running ahead to then frame up a shot. So as the mates were walking through the, the image, I would take it then. Um, so I've always been doing that. And that then leads on to the magazines, which they require certain types of photos and selfies are, are no 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 magazine wants a selfie <laughs> and so you need to, to think about the sorts of images you're taking and i downloaded the wild contributor guidelines recently and that was interesting they were saying we need say two wow photos rather than 10 good photos yeah and and this is very, very true. So it, it's worth spending the time to think about the images that you're taking. And what I found is that you've got to get the required shots, whatever they might be for a particular magazine. And then I found that I was choosing trips that I could get a story out of, which is good and bad. It's it's limiting in some ways. Yeah. Um, but so... In, in doing that, you I wouldn't – and that's probably one of the reasons I didn't do the overland track because who wants a story on the overland track? Everyone's done it. Um, so when I did the overland track, it was purely for myself. Yep. Just purely I just did it because I wanted to do it and I loved it. it saying that, I, I did take the time to take photos and, again, for myself. One of the trips I did was uh, the root burn track. And that was in December. That, and that's in, that's in New Zealand, is it? I believe in in New, Ze in New Zealand. Yeah, it's um, 
yeah, so out of Queenstown. And um, so I went over, I was over there for a conference, so I thought, oh, great, I'll, I'll take an extra few days and go down there and, and do the route burn track. At the time, I was taking photos for the magazine, sorry, for Mountain Designs catalogue, which at that time were as good as magazines. They were print-based, A4, um, fabulous catalogues. And I was given a an alpine sleeping bag. It would have been about at least minus 20. Yep. And Rick, the owner, asked me to go and take photos in the snow. And I thought, great, this, this is going to be tough. This is summer that I'm going by myself. So I had to take this big sleeping bag, overkill sleeping bag. I was staying in huts, but I had to take a tent. And I thought I'd find a a snowdrift somewhere and then set up a shot and have myself in it. So I had to take a tripod. And so the, the extra weight that I was carrying was quite quite a bit for, for that walk. In the end, I was at one of the huts and we got a snowstorm, which was great, <laughs> which, which closed the track, but allowed me to talk to a couple of young fellas in the, the hut and we headed up the, the track and I got this these fabulous set of photos with it snowing snow all around big rocky buttresses and uh yeah so that was one of my favorite photo shoots trying to do the impossible and and yeah i was able to do it so it's doing images for magazines or print or for a particular purpose is a challenge and and i quite like that challenge Okay, well, that actually, that actually quite um, uh, neatly takes us on to my next question. From your perspective, what makes a good photograph? Yes, a, a good photo to me is something that creates an emotional response from someone. Now, um, that that's a good photo. A great photo is one that, that creates an emotional response in pretty well anyone who looks at it. Yesterday, I was mountain biking my, with my wife, and so I just had my phone, took a photo, uh, breaking the rules, took it into the sun, only took one shot. But what it captured was basically my wife saw it. And thought, oh, that's fantastic. That's exactly how it feels. And, and at that point, I knew that I, I had taken a good photograph because she, capturing a feeling is what you're trying to do. There's To do that, you've got to be technically good as well often well it to take consistently good photos you've got to know what you're doing with the camera you have to understand light yep you need to know some of the the basic rules of of light what you'll the first rule that i was ever taught is take a photo with the the sun at your back but here i am yesterday taking a a shot straight into the sun um but if you know what you're doing you can then um, set the the light exposure on the the foreground and and capture that and it ends up being great. Um, so yeah, an emotional response and and some of the work that I I do is is take images or do reviews of caravans. Now caravans are basically boxes on wheels. Um, they all look a little bit different, but what my role is to do is to try and make them look good. And so that's always a challenge, and I really enjoy that. And so creating a remote, an emotional response of either someone saying, wow, I'd love to be there, or, or look at that, how did he get that, that sort of thing. Um, that That's, to me, what makes a good photograph. Yeah. Now, um, do you need to have high-end gear to take good photographs uh, for magazines, or can you get away with something a bit more basic? For magazines, they – and going on the, the – contributor guidelines from wild they require really um it, a camera that can take raw images now if you're not familiar with what a raw image is it's one that you can manipulate later and it captures more detail than you more detail in the image than you actually can see it at first so if you use something like photoshop or adobe lightroom you can then bring up the shadows and get detail in the shadows and, and take down the, the highlights with the sun. And that's fantastic if you're a photographer. And yep. that and the, they've so to do that, to take a raw image, you need a decent camera. Um, 
your phone. I don't think there might be some apps that might allow you to do it with the phone. But one of the things I've found with gear over time is I would buy the expensive lenses, spend my money on lenses, and go for a, a consumer body yeah. and then replace that every couple of years because the technology was continually getting better and I would replace the bodies but keep the glass, which I've done so for a number of years. So if you're just starting out, do that. Get yourself the uh, consumer body and in Canon, it's L-series glass, which will cost you probably over $1,000, but if you're going to do long-term, it'll pay off. So in saying that, in summary up, they, I doubt very much if you would get an image taken on a phone into a magazine these days unless you captured something unique, something that is was just, yeah, you just happen to be, see something great. Otherwise, you'll need to have spend some money on a decent camera and then getting into cameras, you, carry, the weight of cameras is, is important and some of the compact cameras, some of the, the little Canons or Nikon cameras can do a great job and the Sony too, actually. I must admit, I, um, I went through this whole process a few years ago when we started the blog about looking at what camera I was going to carry because I've got two SLRs, but I just don't like carrying the weight of them on a hike. Uh, and we ended up with a Sony um, RX100, which is, is, is still remains my favourite camera. It's got a one-inch sensor. It produces some really good photos. Uh, not waterproof, which is a, the drawback, but I think uh, yeah. I, just, I just find it, it produces good quality images, um, uh, but as you say, it's um, quite often a lot of the cheap compacts. The the quality of the, the images looks good in little little sizes, but once you start blowing them up for magazines or or bigger images, you lose that quality. Yes, the size of the the sensor and the size of the glass yeah. will de de determine basically the quality of the image. And so, the larger that is, the the better image you're going to get for reproduction in magazines or enlarging photos for your wall. And I suppose I suppose the question here is, uh, are you using, uh, I'm guessing by the sound of your comment, you're using Canon as opposed to, to Nikon? Yes, yeah, there's always those two camps, isn't it? And uh, more recently, Sony has made a big inroads into that area. Yeah. So there's a lot of argy-bargy. I started off with a Canon in the 80s, and so I've just stayed that way, and that's what most people tend to do. And recently, about or nearly two years ago, I got the, the latest mirrorless Canon, the EOS R, yep. which um, is I found to be a fabulous camera. And the reason being, it's got a, a full-size sensor. It's not a DSLR, so it, it's it's lighter. Um, it has a screen that you look at as the, in the viewfinder, but that has its benefits as well. And it's interchangeable lenses. So when I did the overland track, I took that with a 24 to 105 millimeter zoom lens. Yep. And uh, that, and with a aperture of f4 through the hole for those who understand apertures. And yeah, that that was about two kilos worth um, on the overland track. But I will leave out other gear so I can take a heavier camera. Yeah, I, I I actually went for a short walk a couple of days ago, and I actually took my little compact, as well as taking my my DSLR with a macro lens on it. And it's like, as much as I like taking uh, macro photos, it's, you've got this thing in your hand that weighs over a kilo, uh, and it just becomes annoying. So, I as much as I love photography, I I'm I'm, I'm I must admit it's it's. The DSLRs are wonderful, but they uh, it's just the weight penalty is just something I'm never willing to quite quite come to. What I do with the the weight is I will hang it off my harness, so my backpack. I'll hang it on on the front of so on my chest. Yep. So that way, it kind of balances the the weight of the backpack as well, and it's easily accessible. So I can be walking along, and I can see a couple of wombats in the snow and I can just whip the camera out straight away and I'm ready without having to take the camera off, uh, take the pack off and get the camera. And that's one of the things that I've been doing for years because if you don't have the camera close to your hand, 
you're going to miss a lot of shots. Yeah, yeah. I think particularly with uh, with with wildlife, with you know, scenery doesn't tend to go anywhere quickly. But uh, you know, as you say, if the wombat shoots off or the birds just disappear, you've you've lost that opportunity. Definitely. Okay, let's let's talk about logistics now. Uh, can you take us through the process of writing? writing slash filming for a, from a, for a topic for a magazine from start to finish? Okay. So what, what you'll do is um, you'll either have a hike in mind that you'd like to do or you might decide that you want to specifically write a story for a magazine. If you've decided that the hike you want to do is suitable for a magazine, what I would do is is read that magazine, read all the articles in it, and over multiple issues of that magazine and get the style of, of what they they publish because each magazine has a different style. Some are very conversational, some uh, are less conversational. Um, some prefer lists and, and a small amount of text and, and highlights and that type of thing. So what I'll do is, is read the magazine and try and understand what they're looking for so you need to be able to write to replicate or that style of writing. Also, within a magazine, there'll be different types of stories. There'll be a feature article or a couple of them. And for a bushwalking magazines, there'll be a, a they'll often be about a, a place, a travel. Um, there's also be track notes, and this might be the the easiest place to start because not many of us do do walks which are, are, are worthy of a, a seven-page article on because it's so different to anything else that other people do. But track notes are a little easier because basically they contain a lot of facts. Um, they're not difficult to write. Again, look at the style of the magazine you're looking for, looking at, and write the, the magazine, or write the, the story for that magazine. And it, often there's different segments about that, the overview, the, the different days, the different walks. So that would be a good place to start. Also get the contributor guidelines because they will detail what is required. And I've recently downloaded the WILD guidelines and, and they're very in-depth and, and they will guide you very well and they will tell you what they don't want as much as what they tell you, what you will like, what they will like and what they will publish. So deciding what type of story or article you want to do, look at the magazine, get the guidelines, and look at the photos as well, uh, what sort of photos they will want. Now, for me, going back, it was the reason that I started writing was it's very difficult to get images published by themselves. It's also very difficult to get stories published by themselves. So if you're a better writer and your mate is a, better photographer maybe you can team up and and do that magazines generally won't publish your story or your article with another person's photographs or, or writing so yeah. that that's a, a thing in summary read the magazine get the contributor guidelines decide what type of article that you want to do and see if that's feasible for you so when you when you go out on a hike, and and, and again I'll, I'll pick the overland track because you, you mentioned you'd you'd done that uh, relatively recently, I mean and and you did say you were taking the photographs yourself on this one, but if if you were doing that for an article, do you start your walking thinking okay I need x number of photos that look like this and a couple of others that look like that and you you you're looking for that sort of thing or do you just do your walk and think oh that that will meet my requirement. Uh, uh, is it is it more a spontaneous thing or a bit more of a planned thing? Definitely a planned thing. If you were looking at writing an article prior to doing a particular hike, what you would look at is read other people's writings on that, read track notes on that. Um, so it's and these days it's easy to Google and and find what other people have written. You'll also be able to find what other people have taken photographs of. So you'll know the standard photo on the overland track. There's the 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 um the great view from Pallion Hut, yeah, which everyone's taken. Everyone's got that same photo taken from the helipad. <laughs> that w- that will never get published. So, 
look for differences. Look for differences. Um, if everyone's taking that view, look behind and see if there's a photo there. Um, so have it in your mind what sort of photos will make yours stand out because you'll get a lot of competition. So you have to be a little bit different um, and you have to have those photos. So having something in mind, when I did the Overland track, it was started at Anzac Day. So one of the reasons for doing the Overland track in late April is the Fagus that um, is along the, around certainly Cradle Mountain and further down the, the track, which turns a, a brilliant a br- brilliant orange to, to yellow. And that's only there for a couple of weeks a year. So that's worth trying to, to get. So choosing the time that you actually go on a walk. If you were doing a walk in Western Australia, perhaps pick the time when the wildflowers are out. Um, pick it so it, it's, it's, speci- it's special. Yeah. And there's certain times that certain walks are special. Also, the, the the opportunity to get snow on the Overland Track was also an interesting factor for me. I'm a cross-country skier, so snow doesn't worry me in terms of camping in snow and that sort of thing. I've certainly got the gear. So that adds um, some more interest. And what you'll find is when the, the going gets tough, people often will put their cameras away and they're offering the best times to get those best photos. And um, so take it. And with having a camera around my, on my chest, I'm able to get it out quickly. I would have a dry bag. I'd have it in a dry bag, and then I'd be able to put my hand in, bring the camera out, take those images when it's snowing or raining, and put it back again. So they're the less photograph types of things. When the weather is bad, you'll often get the, the best photos as well. All right. So definitely planning goes a long way and when you're on the track be a lookout for not what's in front of you but also what is from behind you because the view is very different um the the overland track everyone generally walks north to south that's the way it's done but always turn around and see what the view is behind you because that'll be a less photographed view i think you're right there because because the restrictions you know when you when you get doing the permitting permitted walk and you are going north to south, you are walking in the run direction. Um, I don't think I've ever seen an article written on someone who's done the walk the opposite way. And and partly that's because you you have to be, in, you walk it in certain months of the year, which is pretty much wintertime these days. But it, it, I must admit, it would be interesting to see someone that has written the walk from the opposite direction. Uh, and, you know, as you say, it's just not something that you hear about. Yeah, that's right. Because there is a certain walking season I'm sure there are people who do walk from south to north, but not certainly not very common these days. No, no. Uh, now, you mentioned before you, you're typically using a, a 24 to 105 mil lens. Is that the, the lens you, you usually carry, or would you vary it depending on what, what you think you're going to get on the walk? That lens has been a fabulous lens, and I've only had that since I've had the EOS R. Prior to that, I had a, a 17 to 40, so it was a very much a wide angle lens and when i had my film camera for 15 years i used that one camera and i would use a 28 mil lens and that's all i would carry mainly because it was fairly light and it would allow me to capture great landscapes and with a wide angle lens you're able to capture a good foreground as well as a um, a lot of levels of depth in the in the photograph um, so the 24 to 105 i think is a great lens for me it's, it's quite heavy um, but yeah, I really enjoy it. In terms of other lenses, I've got bigger lenses, yep. but they're heavier, so I would never take my seventy to two hundred on a bushwalk. It, it it itself weighs about two kilos, so yeah. that's uh, a bit too much. And for for an extra benefit, it's not really suited. To, a wide angle to a, a short tele photo type lens would be the best for bushwalking. Yeah, all right, that's good to know. Okay, so one final question, I suppose. From an advice perspective, if someone is keen to become a photographer and or a writer and contribute to the magazines, what advice would you offer? First would be, as I've mentioned, read the story, read the stories in the magazine that you're looking at, get the contributor guidelines, decide what type of story, but keep trying. Um, You will get rejected. I went for about three or four stories without 
getting rejected, which so when I got my first rejection, I was a bit surprised. But um, these days you will get rejected more often than not. Um, so keep trying and keep learning. Um, and be uh, look at your photos and you can always make them better. Yeah. No matter what, how great a photo is, it could always be slightly better. So always look at that and think, what could have I done to make this better? And um, you'll never get a perfect image, but certainly just taking as many images as you can, but also thinking about them before you take them. Don't just snap off the photos because you will, you'll get, if you take 100 photos in one spot, you're bound to get a good one. But if you move around, that is. But think about what makes a good photo to you. And, uh, and there are a number of rules in photography. Rule of thirds is one. Um, and having the sun behind your back and all that sort of thing. But know those rules and then look at breaking those rules. And yep. so practice. Yeah, practice is the best thing to do. Okay. That's great. So we've been talking with Gary Tisher about his career as a writer-photographer for Outdoor Magazines. Gary, thank you for taking your time. Thank you. It's, it's been fun. So that was an interesting chat uh, with Gary, and I found um, I resonated with a lot of what he was saying, uh, and I suppose I'm not... I'm not too much younger than than him, than him, so it's not not unexpected. Um, first up, he talked about the fact that he's got a hundred years worth of photos sitting wow. at home, uh, and I think in a suitcase. In a suitcase, yeah. And I can I have this image in my head about what the suitcase looks like too. So it's 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 more than likely not a modern suitcase, you know. So it's it's kind of full of full of history and heritage. I think, yeah. And I, and I must admit, I um, I do have family photos um, uh, from my father and uh, uh, and grandparents going back that sort of time frame as well. But it, it's the typical happy snap more than anything else. Not the uh, hey, this is we're about to go on a hiking or camping trip. Yeah. Uh, so it was that. It it would be. I think it would be a really good book. How, how, yeah. How how amazing to be a fourth generation hiker. That's just that's just fabulous and. Uh, the happy snaps, you know, that does re resonate with me because that's kind of what I do. You just point and shoot lots and see what happens. But this is different. And I think that's the thing with photography over the years. I um, I can remember getting my first camera that I owned for Christmas uh, in, oh, God, when was it? It would have been you know, probably. going to age in, yourself for yeah, me yeah, now, it Tim. Will, yeah, it was, I think it was 1969. Uh, you know, I was a box brownie, and it's you know, it, it, at that stage you you took a roll of film, you had to take it down to the chemist. It was the typical thing in those days, um, you know. And you'd come back and pick up the film a week later after it had been uh, been uh, processed, and it wasn't a cheap process to actually get the film processed. Um, so there certainly has been quite a lot of changes uh, in the time that that, that since Gary has been contributing to the magazine and he started in uh, in the early 1980s with Wild Magazine, which is uh, one of Australia's uh, uh, main outdoor magazines. Um, as he said, um, he was taking slide film at that stage and, and I can certainly remember from that period that the quality images were always slide film, uh, but as Gary mentioned, that you needed to get it right. You know, there was no... Post editing, there was pretty much, you know, you 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 process these things, and what you got was was it. Um, so it's it was an expensive process, uh, and it was something that um, you, know, you you typically had to think about what you were taking because you didn't want to waste money in the processing. So you'd you'd sit there and you'd line up your shot and you'd think about what it was that you were doing. I think there was also a sense of, um, you know, he mentioned learning the craft. He mentioned learn how to take your photos with the techniques and in the right way um, and then break the rules. And I kind of like, like that part because, uh, you know, I think we sometimes forget to learn the craft and then um, evolve what we're doing from there. Uh, and that's been the thing with digital cameras these days. I mean, as as Gary mentioned, his first digital camera was in the early two thousands. 
Uh, it wasn't a particularly powerful camera by, by standards these days, and it cost him $1,500. Uh, and, you know, the, the big advantage with digital cameras is providing you had a big enough memory card, you can snap away quite happily. Uh, and, you know, if you take 100 photos, you'll normally expect to get a, a few good ones out of that. Uh, whereas, as I, as I mentioned, with film and with slide, you had to think about it because it was going to cost you. Um, I I found it interesting that Gary mentioned that you know, he typically will take about 800 photos in a week, and that's about the level of what I take on a, on a week-long trip. Uh, and you know, it is it is so easy to take one, two, three, four shots of the thing you're looking at and then pick the best one out of it. Um, and it's, it's the sort of thing that... Um, uh, Digital has changed how we do things, um, uh, but it still doesn't negate the the concept of knowing how to use your camera and knowing how to use the functions on your camera. For most people, they will actually um, leave the camera on auto. They they typically don't know how to use the manual functions, uh, and it it makes a big difference. If I'm doing artistic shots uh, and taking the time and really thinking about what I'm doing, I'll use my my SLR camera at least on manual. Uh, but certainly if I'm going on a hiking trip, 99 times out of 100, it's on auto and that's it. Mm. Um, yeah. it's, it's only when I'm really trying to you know, spend the time lining something up and really thinking about what I'm doing that I'll start using the manual functions. But at least if you know how to use those functions, it gives you the ability to, to have a bit of a play. Uh, he mentioned Instagram filters. Uh, and again, if you're, we'll talk about contributions to magazines in a few minutes. But I have seen some spectacular images on Instagram. Uh, but having said that, I know full well they've been filtered to death. You will never see the image in real life. Um, it'll look a bit duller and a bit less... Uh, um, a bit less colourful um, because the filters have been done to to such an extreme. They do look good. They look they're a piece of artwork, um, but they just look unnatural. So as Gary mentioned, you know if you are going to be using Instagram filters more for social media than anything else, um, you want to you know get it to where you think it's going to be and then sort of take it back a tiny bit just so it doesn't look like it has been filtered. I found this bit interesting because you know I guess. Um uh, I, I expected him to be a bit more of a purist in terms of, uh, you know, where he's come from and um, the experience that he has. That he 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 wouldn't want to tamper, fiddle, adjust uh, his images too much. Um, and you know, that's probably one of those. There's there's lots of divides between you know uh, arguments that people have about different things. That's probably one of them. You know. To, to to adjust your your images or not to adjust your images, I, I suspect people sit in two very different camps when it comes to that. And I think that's the thing with taking photos as well. That it, that um, it, it, the less the more time you spend lining up your shop, thinking about what you're doing, the less time you have to spend editing back at home on a computer. And if you've got eight hundred images that you need to go through and play with. You know, that's a lot of time that you need to spend editing. I mean, the thing with doing editing, it, it's 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 almost taking a good photo and making it slightly better rather than trying to take a really bad photo and turn it into something decent. Well, how about taking a really good photo that actually looks quite great? <laughs> and, I, and I think that, that sort of um, brings up the next point that Gary mentioned that a good photo or a great photo elicits an emotional response. Yeah, yeah, and that's I, good. I think we've all had, all seen images of being like that. I have taken probably a handful of images over the last, um, probably the last 10 to 15 years that I think are great photos, but they are few and far between. You know, you, you get back at the end of a, a multi-week trip, you have a look at them on a computer screen and think, wow, that's a really good photo. Uh, but you know you've taken a thousand photos to, to get, get that one. Get that one. <laughs> and, and as I, said, I do have maybe one or two images that I really love and really think they're great photos. But it, you know it's probably one or two per trip that I that I'll get that sort of quality out of. Now talking about um, contributing to magazines, and this is something that uh, a lot of people 
um, have become more interested in over the years is that, you know, you look at the print-based magazines and to a greater extent the online magazines that are available uh, and it's no good just saying, here you go, here, I've written a story and here's a couple of photos, um, you know, go through and pay me to, to, to run this in your magazine. I've gone through and put the links to the contributor guidelines for both Wild Magazine and for Great Warts Magazine. Uh, and you really need to know, as, as Gary mentioned, what it is the magazines want. Um, you know, read the magazines, be familiar with the magazines, know what type of stories they tend to print and, and, and the language they tend to use. Uh, that will give certainly give you a better chance of getting something printed. And it needs to be something a bit more unique. I mean, as he mentioned, you know, he, he went through last year and did a trip on the Overland Track. And, you know, there are thousands of people that have done this. There are thousands of people that have written articles. It would have to be something really special uh, for it to get printed in a magazine. Having said that, his trip, you know, he, he did it in April, which is not as common as most people tend to do. And as a result, he, he had a lot of snow. And, and I think that's something I've done the Overland Track. I'd like to go through and do it again. But I'd like to do it in, in that April, sort of May period, just at the start of winter. Uh, just to get a bit of snow. Uh, I don't think I would gain that much out of doing another trip during the, the peak season again. Um, it, you know, I don't think it would be that different to justify doing it a second time. I did like the idea of, you know, you, you're looking at the iconic image in front of you, just turn around and see what it looks like um, behind you. You know, I did like that idea of, you know, getting a difference uh, to your images, um, taking something that stands out a little bit, same place but from, you know, a, a different angle. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose the final comment we'd make here is uh, expect rejection. Um, I, <laughs> I know certainly from, from our perspective I get anything up to about 100 emails a week and I do get quite a lot of people wanting to contribute to Australian Hiker um, and, yeah, it's just the sheer volume of what we get. It's it's hard to actually respond back to everybody. It's hard to say no in a lot of cases, but we we've decided we we're doing things in a particular way. Um, so it's it's the sort of thing. The magazines are the same. They get so many um, people emailing them and saying, "I've got this wonderful story," or "Here's some wonderful photos." Um, and yeah, it's better if you meet their requirements rather than trying to guess at what they want. Yeah, and I, well, I think we have to, you know, realise that uh, today with digital cameras and with social media, um, every second person is a photographer and or a, a writer of something. You know, there are blogs and um, uh, there, there's even uh, through COVID some funny messages put out by the ABC about don't start a podcast. <laughs> so you know, I, I I think the the competition is fierce, and you have to you have to be great at what you're doing, and you have to have something that's different. Okay, we hope you've enjoyed listening to uh, Gary's story and and um, and what it takes to be a writer, photographer, contributor to the Australian Outdoor Magazines. Um, and if it's something you think that you'd be interested in. Download the contributor guidelines and see what you can come up with. You never know. You might be the, the next the next big thing in, in the outdoor industry as far as writing articles is concerned. That's all for me for this week. Bye for now. And bye from me.